As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word and I pray now that you would grant grace to us. We've sung of your wonderful grace and love um, and is evidenced in the sending of your son, our Lord Jesus, but it's also evidenced in the fact that you have given to us a written account that is true and trustworthy that we can read and study and fill our minds and hearts with uh, so that we may live wisely in the world uh, in which we find ourselves. And so I, fi- I pray, God, that even now you grant to us grace as we read and think and that we would be blessed to have your wisdom. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the book of James in the New Testament. James in chapter 1, please. Um, I'll read the first 12 verses. James in chapter 1, please. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Webster's Dictionary defines the word paradox like this. A paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. So a paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. That's the case. The Bible is full of them. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The persecuted are blessed. If you're a slave, you're free. Power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, when I am weak, I am strong. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, paradox is truth standing on its head and shouting for attention. It's shouting, up is down and down is up. And if that's the case, these verses 9 and 10 are paradoxical. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. It isn't how we would think it to be at all. But that is how it really uh, is. That the lowly brother would boast in his exaltation and the rich In his humiliation. So the question for us is, so what is James' point here? 
Why does he say that? And why does he say that here? And that's an important question, you see, because these, 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 these expressions aren't given in a vacuum. They have a context, as we know. And as we're reading through this wisdom book in the New Testament, and James is giving us wisdom on how we're to navigate life, this is wisdom for us to know that the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation and the rich should boast in his humiliation. See, James is writing to a group, as we said before, of refugees, uh, persecuted Christians, uh, Jewish believers who found themselves in Jerusalem when a persecution came through the hands of a man named Saul of Tarsus, ironically. And so they were scattered. They went everywhere. So they find themselves homeless and jobless and friendless, uh, countryless, really. And they're trying to make their way in this new land as believers in Jesus. They've embraced the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of the people of God. And so, But now they find themselves, if you will, refugees, exiled, if you will, from their, their country land and from their own people, if you will. Now, the question that they would be asking, it seems, is why this, why me? Same kinds of questions you and I would ask and do ask when difficulties come. And so James now is writing to them to give them wisdom, God's wisdom, of how they're to navigate this new life. And he begins by giving them the wisdom that God has a purpose for this particular situation they find themselves in. And his purpose is he's going to mature them in Christ, to grow them up, make them complete in Jesus, lacking really nothing. Because they have Christ, then they have everything. And that's the intent of God through this trial. So that's wisdom for them to know. It's wisdom for them to know that the means by which God will produce this end result is a testing of their faith through this circumstance and situation of being refugees. And it's good for them then to approach this whole situation by counting it joy. Joy will come when the end result comes and they'll live in joy complete in Jesus. And now they're to import that even through the process to know that since good is to come, I can now still have joy, have a deep sense of well-being because I know God is really at work. You see, that's all right for attitude's sake to, to kind of set me up to give me the attitude through which I can go through the difficulty. But, 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 but tell me, how do I navigate day in and day out? And for that, James says, ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Ask him to help you. Now, he's not going to tell you all the ins and outs. He's not going to tell you all the whys and wherefores. But he will help you by way of his word and give you insight in his word to navigate the difficulties of life. You may not know why the road curves, but he'll help you get through the curve of the road. And that's the wisdom of God. And he'll call us through his wisdom to live in a way that shows that Christ is in us. That the very character of Christ will be revealed through us in the midst of these trials. That's what it is to live wisely, to live godly, is to live wisely in the midst of the circumstance and situation. And we realize, you see, this wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of the world. When, when, when the prophet Isaiah speaks of the wisdom of God in Isaiah chapter 55, God puts it like this. 
through him, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. No surprise, the way God looks at things is different than the way we look at things, because we're creatures, not the creator, and we're sinful creatures at that. And so we have a tendency, even in Christ, to look at things the way the Apostle Paul would say it, according to the flesh, according to what makes sense to us. And, and we often miss it. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, you might remember that Paul is writing to really defend, oddly enough, his apostleship. They, they don't think he's an apostle. And they don't think he's an apostle because he doesn't look like one. He doesn't talk like one. And, 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 and he doesn't make enough money to really be one. I mean, he's not accepted generally. And, and so they're evaluating him according to the flesh. And they look at him and say, well, you don't look attractive enough. And they listen to him and they say, well, you don't speak uh, like a good orator. So, so, so you're not really an apostle. And, and, and look at you. Everywhere you go, you're getting thrown in prison or beaten or, or run out of town. People don't really accept you. And, and you don't even charge for what you do. You can't even make any money at this. And so you look at that and you go, well, you must not be. And he says, no, 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 you're judging me according to the flesh. And he bases his argument by saying this. He says, if we judge Jesus according to the flesh, we'd miss him. And so he writes to them, he says, therefore, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, or 16, he says, therefore, uh, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, when Jesus came, people looked at him and he said, who's he? He's no, that just looks like the rest of us. And then he gets killed, executed as a criminal. If we judge him according to the flesh, he seems like he's not the Messiah. But we mustn't judge him according to the flesh. We must see him through the eyes of God. And so that's what we're getting as we come to James. We get this godly wisdom. That's the expectation. As we work our way through this book, we'll become increasingly wise because we'll evaluate things not according to the flesh, to see things not according to the world, but to see things as God sees them, you see. And that is that is wisdom. And so now James gives us an illustration of what he means. He's been saying, you go through trials, count it joy, because you're going to mature in the midst of this. So, so let me give you an illustration. Let me give you a couple of extremes. Let me contrast, if you will, the lowly person or poor person and the rich person. How are they to navigate life through those trials? Both the trial of being lowly this always astounds us, but the trial of being rich. And we all say, give me that trial of being rich. And the Lord says, I don't know if you want that trial. That may be more difficult than its opposites. To really live and to really know and grab a hold of life. And so here's what he says 
to them. He, he says, let the lowly brother exalt in his exaltation. You can imagine that there were a lot of lowly brothers, poor brothers in the midst of this situation as refugees getting this letter. They were homeless, they were jobless and so forth, as we've said. And so the difficulties of their lives, they would be considered to be lowly in the context of the social order, if you will. There was this majority culture and they were the minority culture. They were the lowly ones, socially, politically, economically, in every way. And he says, here's how I want you to navigate life. Here's how I want you to understand life as a lowly brother. Now for us, it's difficult for many of us, maybe all of us, to, to really empathize or, 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 or relate to that kind of lowliness, really. Although we can in a relative way, I suppose. Uh, many of us have that sense of lowliness. We look at our lives and we realize that many of our friends are doing better than we. And so we, we, we contrast our lives. And, and how do we understand that? Some of us have experienced tremendous difficulty and loss. Well, others have not experienced such difficulty and loss among us. And we wonder, well, how do, how do, we, how do we share life together? How does the one who's experienced such loss relate to those who haven't? experience such loss and vice versa. Um, Some of us are wealthier than others. Uh, Some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are more educated than others. Some of us um, have different experiences in the life of the church. Some of us sense, well, I really fit here. Others sense, well, in this season of life, I don't. And so how is it that when we're having this sense of, of lowliness, if you will, of humility amongst others. How do we how do we understand that in the context of of how God works in our lives? In the same way, those who are rich, how do they navigate uh, this life uh, really uh, wisely? And, and notice the wisdom for the lowly brother. He is to boast in, that is to take pride in, to take confidence in, to rejoice in his. Exaltation. And you say, what does James mean by that? Well, it means that the lowly brother isn't to view himself as the world would view him. But rather that he would or she would view himself or herself as God does. And for this lowly brother, uh, the, the notion is that you're to count it joy because really if you see your life as God sees your life, you're in an exalted position. You're in an exalted position because you belong to him. For instance, in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 15, we read this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the wisdom for the lowly refugee is is not to think of him or herself as the world does, as lowly and all of that, but to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who am I really? I really am a child of God. I really do belong to him. I really can call to him in an intimate way to call him Abba, Father, and he will hear me. What a tremendous position for anyone. Some of you, if I 
text you, you don't text me back. I can't even get into you to see you, to hear you. And yet, we simply can call in the name of God and he hears us. And for the one who is lowly, you see, God says, this is the position you're in so that you will know that you can have hope in no one else other than me. That's your exalted position. You're an heir of God. All that belongs to God belongs to us as his people. He's our father, Jesus, our brother. We're heirs of all that Christ has won for us, you see. And that's why in the season of Lent, we begin with this story of of Jesus going up against Satan, if you will, in the wilderness. Why? Because as the second Adam, he comes to undo what the first Adam did. The first Adam sinned when Satan came to him. The second Adam doesn't. Why? So that all could be restored and all that would be promised to Adam upon his, his obedience is now given to us through Jesus. That is our inheritance and earth eventually upon which God dwells and we dwell with him where there is no sin. We're heir of that life. That's the life to come, if you will. And that's who we are. So he says to the Lord, don't think of yourself as the world thinks of you. Think of yourself as exalted, as, as, as a child of God. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he even puts it more uh, dramatically and explicitly in Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 4. This passage after telling us about uh, what sin has done, verse 4 puts it like this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, where are we seated presently, spiritually? With Christ. So he says, lowly brother, I I know when you look around and you see your position here, and I know when you talk to people and they treat you as if you're this lowly one, don't be confused. Don't let that confuse you. Because really, at this moment, as a believer in Jesus, you're seated with him. You're his heir. Now, I know that when you're in the moment of lowliness, whatever that has caused that to be, whether it's an illness or whether it's a disappointment or whether it's an unemployment situation or whether it's whatever it is, You feel yourself disenfranchised. You feel yourself marginalized, either culturally or maybe even in your own family. And it's easy then to evaluate that circumstance and that situation by what we see, but we don't live by sight. We live by faith. And he says, now I want you to remember, I want you to boast and take confidence in your exaltation that here's who you really are. You're a child of God. You're an heir of God. And you're seated with Christ. Then in where First Peter in chapter 2, um, verse 9, we read this. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says to us individually and, and most especially for us as a, as a community of people, a church. He says, you're a chosen race. You're chosen to be mine. 
uh, out of all the people in the world, I've chosen you to be mine. A royal priesthood. Royal, that is, of the king and your, your, your intercessors. Um, and you have access to God as, as priests have access to God. And you're a holy nation, a people set apart to be my own, God says. You're a people for my own possession. You're my treasured possession, is the Old Testament language. Uh, that sense that everything belongs to God, but, but we're his delightful treasure. His very own. And he says, you've got to get that in you. I know is in, in the position that you may feel yourself to be. And let's face it, in the world in which we live, we're aliens. This world as it is, is not our home. The world to come is our home. But this world isn't, you see. And that becomes evident from time to time for us. And if we evaluate that circumstance by the way the world values it, we look lowly always. But God says, no, don't, don't be confused by that. Understand who you really are. Get that in your mind and get that in your That's why Jesus could say very simply, as he's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's no spiritual blessing for being poor in and of itself. But when Jesus said blessed are the poor, he meant meant poor as in those left by, in in the exile, left back. Uh, You remember in the exile, uh, people were exiled generally by their position, the most important and the wealthiest first. And then after a while, the conquering country got tired of exiling people and just left a group of people back there. And they were the poor. There they were with absolutely nothing. Their temple had been destroyed and, and their land had been destroyed. And there they were. Just and What could they do? They had no other real option other than to cry out to God. And who were the exalted ones at that moment? As Jesus would also say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual bankruptcy and they have no place to turn other than God. Those are the blessed ones. So those poor ones who cry out to God, understand your exalted position. Don't get confused by the standards of the world. Because you see, one of the great difficulties, one of the great trials of being high socially and economically and politically, one of the great difficulties of being rich is that that position can be very deceptive. We can actually think that because we're in that high position socially and economically and and politically and so forth, we're in that position, then it means we're better than everyone else. Or in that position means that we can thus then just depend upon our position and our place and our our power, if you will, socially and economically. And and, and we won't cry out to God. And so riches, you see, can be very deceptive. And so he says, for the rich... You should boast in your humiliation, not in your standing in the world. Don't let your riches confuse you. See, that's the great trial of the wealthy. 
that riches can really confuse us, that we become negligent of the things of God because we think all is all is well. I, I remember when I was in seminary, uh, we had a number of third world uh, 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 students, students of the third world, uh, who would come by way of scholarship and otherwise to the seminary. And uh, every single one that I met during that time said the greatest temptation to them was that America seemed like heaven. And all they had to do was stay here and all would be well. Because they could never imagine any place in the world like this. Not even heaven. And the great danger was for them then to lose the vibrancy of their faith. And when James speaks of the the wealthy exalting in their humiliation, he's simply echoing, of course, as he always did, uh, his older brother, Jesus. In Matthew, in chapter 6, what we have is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uh, speaks very directly to this verse 19. He says, Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also then he goes on to say no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other you can't serve uh, both God and money James would say listen here's, here's the problem that the, your riches and the rich man will fade away. Just like the grass burns up in the heat of a Kansas summer. It isn't permanent. It won't last. It can't satisfy. It can't give you security really. It looks like it can. It feels like it can. But, but it doesn't. It can't. Uh, and so don't count on that. If you have it, you're blessed. There's no sin to being rich. There isn't sin to be have a high position in the culture. But, but, but don't count on that in your relationship with God. Don't serve that. Cause it to serve God, you see. Uh, store up treasures in heaven. That which really, really lasts, you see. Don't be confused by it. Jesus told a parable. We have it in Matthew 13 and also in Luke. But in Matthew 13, this parable, we call it of the sower, or the parable of the seeds. And, and the sower goes and sows the word of God and, and falls on various hearts, if you will. But one heart is a heart that isn't really turned to God. And that heart, look at what it says, the one, the seed thrown among the thorns or the thorny heart. Verse 22 as for that, what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You see, it, we get, it gets choked out because our hearts are really distracted and they go after the things of the world and evaluate life as the world evaluates life, not as God does. So don't trust it. Don't trust it. It will kill you. It really will. And then, of course, we come along in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, two uh, incidents in the life of Jesus 
The first one beginning in verse 13. Says that when children were brought to him that, that he might lay his hands on them and pray, the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And we know that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like children, not innocent. Children aren't innocent. I think we all know that. If you don't sign up to, to work in the two-year-old's class, uh, if you're not convinced of that yet, uh, they're not innocent, right? But they're utterly dependent. They have nothing. Children have nothing. He said, oh, it's for the likes of children that the kingdom of heaven is. Because you come with nothing, really, but your sin. And so then a young man, a rich young man, comes to Jesus. And you know this incident in the life of Jesus. This rich young man comes to Jesus. And he uh, says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? And he goes through at least part of the commandments, those ones which relate to other people and our, our care for them. And, and Jesus said, well, what about those? And he says, well, I've, I've obeyed all of those. And so Jesus says, well, let me... Let me just get a little closer to your heart. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. He looked at his possessions, and he looked at the kingdom of God, and he went after his possessions. The disciples were amazed, and this is really the point of that incident. Verse 23 in Matthew 19. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sorry, verse 22, when the young man uh, heard this, he went away very sorrowful because he had great possessions. Uh, And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Verse 25 When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? You know, if the rich holy man can't be saved, who can? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He's saying, essentially, put your trust in God. Not your trust in yourself, not that you're trusting you. Don't be confused. Don't be confused by your position. Your position can be confusing, but rather trust in God. And then Luke in chapter 12. You can turn to these, by the way. Luke in chapter 12. uh, Another situation in the life of Jesus. Uh, There were a couple of brothers and they were arguing about their inheritance. And so they asked Jesus, this is verse 13. They asked Jesus, uh, could you help us divide the inheritance? And he sort of said, well... Why are you talking to me about this? And then he tells them this, verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, we can be our heads so turned by what we have that we can think that's life. All of these things are life. And without them, I have no life. But with them, I really have life. And so what will we, we will do? We will serve those possessions by getting more possessions and more possessions and more possessions. And that will become our life. So he tells a story about a person just like that. The, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I'll do this. Now just stop there for a minute. He had all this stuff. What should he do? Well, not this. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. She did not have said, God, thank you for this. What should I do with it? Who needs this? How can I help? But he didn't. He thanked his soul. He said, soul, way to go. Look what we did. Now we're set. And he looked at all he had, and it confused him. And, and we sort of smile, and we say, how silly is that? But come on, we know how silly, we, we, we know that confusion. And maybe we don't, we're so accustomed to the wealth that we have. But he found himself in a situation for which he had nothing stored. He met the Lord. And he had nothing. And then Luke chapter 16. Another incident. Jesus tells this story. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. In other words, Lazarus ate this man's garbage. Uh, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died also and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. See, he still doesn't get it. (laughs) He's still treating Lazarus like his slave. Right? Send Lazarus. Uh, you know, I got a task, another task for him. You know, I know I, I, I abused him while he was alive, but uh, he's just my slave. Uh, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's confront, he's, he's comforted here and you're in anguish. Besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here uh, to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There'll be a great reversal. The poor dependent upon the Lord will find themselves exalted. Remember that in your lowly position. The rich who depend upon their riches will find themselves eternally unable to be comforted. And there you see we find ourselves. So the wisdom you see of God is that we're not to think ever of our situations the way the world does. It's completely wrong. We find ourselves in lowly positions We're to meditate upon, think about, and realize the truth that we belong to God. We're his child. We have access to him. 
we're heirs to everything that's in heaven. And that we're presently seated with him, so we're secure. He's exalted us already to that place. And we know that we're his very treasured possession. So when you find yourselves in that situation and those difficulties and you ask God for wisdom, he'll at least say this, remember whose you are. Remember that. And rejoice in your exalted position. Don't be confused by your position in the world. And if you find yourself honored with wealth, in a really good place, and good position in the world, don't be confused. Don't rely upon that. Don't think that is going to last or save you. It won't. You should think about your humble position. That you're no better than anyone else. That you need God just like everybody else does. And you might look at the poor person. And, and, and you might look at your own situation and go, I'm better off in this world than they. But spiritually, we're the same. Spiritually, I have no more than they to offer to God for him to receive and accept me. And, and now the trial is, will I use what I have to the glory of God? Or will I be used but I what by what I have huh, to put my trust in it. See, this is this is the model, if you will, of, of the life of Jesus, who was rich yet for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. In the eyes of the world, who knew Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God? He didn't give that appearance. And they killed him. But yet, he is the wisdom of God. And we're to see things as that wisdom instructs. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. He took bread, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And on this day, as we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we think this. As we come to this table, those who feel lowly come remembering their position in Jesus. And those tempted by their position in the world should come realizing their humility. And as we come, we should look around at each other. And we should look and realize we're all the same. None of the stuff that the world says matters, matters, really. Our positions, our wealth, our educations, our accomplishments, our attractiveness. 
Here we come to this table. Just like the tax collector at the temple who beat his chest. And he said, have mercy on me, the sinner. We come to this table with nothing but our sin. Rich, poor, high, low. All of us. Together. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would help us for those who find themselves in difficult straits relative to everybody else. I pray that you would be with them. That as they come to this table, they would exalt, knowing that they're your child, treasured by you. For those who are experiencing life that seems at the moment good by the world's standards, that you would enable us not to be tempted to find our security there or think we're better or forget our own sinfulness and our own need to be saved by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us then together may come to this table trusting in Jesus and trusting in him alone. Please, Father, give us as a people the wisdom to see through all the exterior stuff and all the trappings that the world might say are important and to enable us to see through all of that and past it and see one another as we really are. All of us, poor in spirit, utterly bankrupt, dependent only upon the work of Christ for our salvation. And that we then who persevere may receive from you the crown of life. So I pray, Father, you take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that as we come to this table... We would recognize the presence of our Lord Jesus, the one who was rich, became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be rich. And this I pray in Jesus' name.